Hello, welcome back to the Academy Podcast. My name is Aaron Mejias, and today we finally, finally, finally have our brand new co-host on, Daniel Grosso. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, um, and this time I have the mic attached to my computer, so hopefully you can hear me. Oh boy. So, I guess what everybody doesn't know, or I probably mentioned in the solo episode last time, was that we had actually recorded your introduction Three times, times? I want to say. Yeah, three times. And it's you're new to podcasting and I'm relatively new to podcasting. So we were just having a lot of audio quality issues and felt super uncomfortable publishing any of those episodes. So um, I ended up doing a solo and figured we would put off his introduction until now. So welcome on. Glad to have you you here finally. To actually finally be here. Sweet. Um, I had a quick question. You're nearing the end of your semester, correct? Correct. Semester number okay. two. Sweet. Sweet. So what, what class are you taking right now? Um, due to COVID, I'm currently only taking one class, but I'm taking formal logic. So doing that online, not exactly uh, Epicureanism. So. <laughs> okay. Did you do you study a lot of ancient philosophy where you're at or no? Um, currently not so much. Uh, I'll be taking a class on Kant, which is the most ancient that uh, we'll be getting. <laughs> My last semester was all from like 1980s forward, so not so much. So I don't. So so what is that? So like Plato, Plato and the Stoics don't get much like love and attention anymore or is it just like your specific program there at st louis um we'll definitely be studying plato and aristotle um but just the classes i took last time and i think the way it's kind of framed is if you took like a class on epistemology what you would do is you know read a chapter of two of these larger ancient books and then very rapidly skip through the enlightenment, you know, touch on like Hume or something. And then all of a sudden here you are. And the bulk of the class is going to be from, you know, the 20th century forward reading articles. It's very rare. I've found so far (laughs) to read a full book um, when it comes to modern text. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. So um, I guess my next question for you is since we are now going to be covering, um, we're finally here at the very end of Epicurus. I didn't think we were ever going to finish the series, <laughs> but um, I muddled through it and we're finally here and um, we're covering his ethics, which is really the culmination of his philosophy. So I was just wondering what you, you know, just give me some of your general impressions uh, as somebody who, you know, probably is not, you know, giving any sort of formal study to Epicureanism. Right, I don't think yeah. he's as popular. I, I couldn't imagine. Uh, I know after reading this, I definitely, uh, understood that there is some controversy and just some misconception as to the general idea or like the popular notion of Epicureanism and what he actually taught. So I was very excited to actually get to read it. And I think we may have, I I read Lucretius in an undergrad program, um, but I never actually read the letters that we have from Epicurus. So it's good to go all the way back. Um, And I mean, just reading it, I, I can see a lot of a lot of future threads going forward. I mean, that's kind of me, you know, reading back into something that may not be there so much, but you can see that he's kind of the father of some 
of some things and it's like okay like i can see these connections but when it comes to the ethics particularly you know finding an ancient materialist is very interesting because we we had talked about the gods uh, several times over but never published um so it's odd to read someone who's a materialist but is an ancient greek and is trying to you know find his way about the gods but just reading everything about the atoms and it, it really is strikingly modern yeah, absolutely. Like that's, you know, I wouldn't say he's like absolutely correct. <laughs> he's obviously, it's obviously very rudimentary in terms of, in terms of scientific understanding, but right. he did a decent job for somebody who was just thinking about things. Seriously. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pretty spot on. So I actually had some corrections that I wanted to get through for the audience before we, um, started to go in on this, but, um, um, from the solo episode, there are actually two corrections. So I mentioned that we can imagine it was a bit of a thought experiment on my end where I was saying, since it's an infinite universe there, you know, there, there may be beings out there on some other planet, organic beings with intelligence that, um, that could be constituted as the gods, you know, just imagining that the gods are really just a alien race somewhere out there. Um, and even though Epicurus and Lucretius both acknowledge that um, there are other beings out there, other forms of life that are in the universe, they definitely suppose that to be the case. Um, Lucretius actually does state, hence their abodes, talking about the gods, must be unlike our abodes. Meaning to say that the gods are not necessarily along this material plane of our existence. Um, I don't know if he means that in terms of dimensions or exactly what is meant by that, but it's supposed to dissuade us from believing that the gods are actual other organic life that exists on a planet somewhere else, that they're uh, a, a different kind of matter. Um, of an, of a, they're in a different ascendancy. Different kind of atom, though, right? It's... <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe a different kind of atom. Um, but, Let's um, not go there. Then the next <laughs> Yeah, let's – yeah, it'd be – painful um the next correction is that um that i stated that epicurus did not attack popular re religion and said told people hey just just pay lip service don't you know don't fight it too much just know the truth in your own heart and that's it's not that simple um in the letter that we're going to cover today um in the letter to mino minosius Menosius, I'm going to say Menosius. Menosius, he actually shows a lot of contempt. He shows a lot of hatred actually towards anybody who preaches religion, um, popular religion of active gods in the life of humans. Um, he sees that as an affront to his ethical framework, and so he he preached very vehemently against it. Um, and Lucretius is even more aggressive um, because they saw popular religion as, and we'll get into this, popular religion as disturbing the um, – the Epicurean ideal of ataraxia, and I promise we'll define that. So, um, and so he was very hostile, but the degree to which he is hostile to that philosophy or to to popular religion, I should say, is debatable. We don't exactly know um, what actions he probably took in his personal life, but he definitely preached against it. So to say that he was not attacking popular religion is false. Um, but uh, I don't know if he was, you know, but he wasn't you know, staging protests at temples or something like that. But he was he was openly, at least in his writings, openly hostile um, towards popular religion. So I needed to make those two corrections before we continued. Um, but um, 
following that, um, you know, why don't you, is there anything that in your reading that popped out that you felt like you wanted to discuss right away, any sort of question specifically um, in any sort of the reading regarding the ethics? Yeah, I felt um, like Im- immediately I- there is a very large importance and this is probably one of where the main misconception around Epicureanism comes from. Because, you know, the popular mind hears Epicurus and imagines, you know, flowing wine, feasts, all these physical pleasures. And I think it's it's the word um, pleasure itself that I think is the one that is used very differently. So um, I was curious if you could talk about like the two aspects uh, that pleasure could have. And like especially for him, the, the idea of a negative pleasure, like the idea that it's essentially just the opposite of pain <laughs> i feel like that that immediately clears up so much and this sets him in a whole different frame yeah it does um and you're you pretty much summed it up right there that it is the opposite of pain and, and more importantly that um we do have a misconception of what pleasure constitutes in the epicurean ethic um because we te- when we say the word hedonism you know that invokes like you said, the flowing wine, the maximization of pleasure, the pursuit of your own um, your own happiness in a very material sense. But Epicurus would be – in fact, I will begin us off with a quote um, from him. I think that it is probably the best quote that we can get in terms of a summation of what he means. And so um, he writes this and once again, the letter to Minosius. Um, he says, the pleasant life is not the product of one drinking party after another or of sexual intercourse, or seafood and other delicacies afforded by a luxurious table. On the contrary, it is the result of sober thinking, namely investigation of the reasons for every act of choice and aversion and elimination of those false ideas about the gods and death, which are the chief source of mental disturbances. So, right. Right. He, because, man, he would say, because Epicurus, uh, there is another quote somewhere. Um, I don't think I have it written down, but he does say that uh, that uh, the the maximization of pleasure is really just the absence of pain. So it's not even to, for him to say that, he, he's not even saying that you can actually like, if we imagine two bars, right? Or I guess like a spectrum, right? And we say you could be in the negative or in the positive in terms of pleasure. Right. And so negative can go all the way to like, let's say negative 100 and then you have positive 100. So he's not even saying that we can, you know, that's how we would imagine the pain, the pain pleasure principle right. where we want to maximize that to 100. He's saying that the scale is actually negative 100 to zero. Right. I think <laughs> he's saying yeah. that. I think the yeah, way we just think get rid about of pain the and pain then, pleasure is so much more utilitarian. And so it's like to have that that switch is very is very strange. Right, right. Because he actually gets into some – the definition is just fundamentally different like you're pointing out is that he's saying that – well, first off, let's not – you know, I don't want to I don't want to get into too much like praise about, oh, he's you – know, look how great this is. This is a different kind of hedonism. Wow, you know, so misunderstood. He is saying that what is morally good is pleasure like and what's morally bad is pain. There is no a priori um, – ethical argument for 
you know, an idea of a natural law, let's say, you know, of a universal ethic. He's not, he is Mm -hmm. definitely a far cry. Right. So here's a saying that he still believes moral good is the same as pleasure and moral evil is the same as pain, but his definition Mm -hmm. of pleasure and pain is different than what we would think of it in a modern sense. Right, right, right. Because there are two kinds of pleasure for him. So, and, and, the opposite of these pleasures are obviously the corresponding pains. So we don't have to get too much into the weeds of this, but there are two kinds of pleasures. Um, you have physical and mental, right? So physical can be something as simple as you're cold, um, you know, or, and then you become warm. Uh, you were feeling a, um, um, let's say you were aching in your joints and then now you are not, um, you were hungry and now you are full, you were thirsty and now you are, um, your thirst has been quenched. And then there are our mental, um, there are mental pleasures, right? So we can say a mental pleasure may be something like you were sad and now you are joyful. You were fearful, but now you are, uh, I don't want to say brave, but <laughs> mm, I guess you're not as anxious or however you want to use the term. Um, and so he would say that those are the corresponding. So you have your your physical and mental. Um, but then he would say your mental pleasures are actually greater than your physical. And then I'm I'm going to keep talking. <laughs> um, so yeah, so because I because I say mental and physical, and it's like oh, okay, that's pretty easy. Like we would tend to, you know, divide pleasure into those two categories. But he goes even further where he talks about kinetic and catastomatic, kinetic and catastomatic. So kinetic pleasures, there are any pleasures that we get by taking an action. So, right, kinetic, kinetic energy, action, change, uh, motion. So it's a pretty broad definition. So, you know, Daniel is thirsty. He picks up a glass of water and he drinks the glass of water. Daniel is hungry. He takes a loaf of bread. He eats the loaf of bread. Daniel is cold. He puts on a blanket. Therefore, he is now warm. Very simple, right? So you have taken an action and that feels good. And it is simply the removing of pain and and helping yourself to something to remove that pain whereas catastomatic and there's different they write it differently it's either c or k catastomatic pleasure is specific and this is where we talk about negation right um because a catastomatic pleasure is more about what he is pursuing what he is after epicurus himself he's saying it's a freedom from disturbance so how do i break this down so when daniel picks up the glass of water right, to drink so that he is no longer thirsty. The kinetic pleasure is in the water you're drinking, right? The the quenching of the thirst as you're drinking the water is how I imagine it to be. But then the catastomatic pleasure is the state of not being thirsty. So once you have drunk the water, put it down, you are no longer thirsty. That is catastomatic. So the kinetic is the change from thirst to no longer thirst and then catastomatic is maybe a minute later i'm like oh i'm actively not thirsty currently i'm not being quenched but i am quenched right exactly perfect so a better metaphor where did we okay so note to the viewer or i see a viewer we're a podcast (laughs) so note to the listener um Daniel and I have been best friends for quite a while. Um, best friends. What's a restaurant that we? What's a restaurant that we used to go to that we really loved? Oh, there's this one don't say called Flanagan's. Flanagan's. Oh, don't say don't uh, say Flanagan's. You ever been to this place called McKeb's? 
Okay. Okay. So let's say Daniel and I go to McKeb's, right? It's, it is, it is a Saturday morning, early Saturday morning. Um, no other time you know, to go. We've, yeah, there we've joined up and we're like, okay. And so you go and we get, we sit down at McKeb's and we've ordered a, uh, a bacon, egg and cheese on an everything, everything bagel, bagel right? toasted. Exactly. All right. That's the standard. And so we've sat down and we're drinking the cup of coffee and you're having, and you're eating this bacon, egg and cheese on. Now this is going to, we're going to have to destroy this example in a bit, but bear with me. So, so you're eating this, right? And it's like, just imagine a meal, right? That you're eating, that you know, you love, it's familiar, it's, it's homey, it's, it is, um, it's it's nostalgic and you're eating it and you're like oh you know if you ever had a meal that you're saying yeah. and you're like this is this is just amazing right and then but then afterwards it's the feeling of fullness right you you could sit back and you're like that was awesome like i loved that experience so that yeah, is i've never felt that at flanagan's. <laughs> at flanagan's you're like this is you, cheap you, and you i'm glad back and you go oh no <laughs> Oh, I should have no. got the featured ribs. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> so that's the difference. So that's how he would break down your pleasures, right? And we and this is and there's some tension here, right? Because you can see a little bit of an overlap, where you're thinking, okay, well, doesn't that mean they're not they're not as distinct as we want them to be? Because kinetic leads into catastomatic, right? But it's right, you know. But it, it seems the best to me to that kinetic is, is that almost. Correct me if I'm wrong, but kinetic seems to involve change where it, and this is why it's a little confusing. I think why you're saying the lines are a little blurred is because human beings tend to be in like a state of existence. So it's like for you to feel quenched or to feel full is if it feels active, but it's not a change in the way that a kinetic pleasure is. Did that make sense at all? Yeah. Yeah, no, it does. It does because you're, yeah, I see that. I can see why I the see line that. is so, blurred. Yeah, but generally speaking, it's best to understand it as the act, the process, right? Let's use the word process. The process of drinking the water or eating the sandwich, right? That That is the actual fulfillment of a need, right? And then- the state of being fulfilled. So kinetic versus catastomatic. It's best okay, as so, understanding it as. So would mm, he, would he say, when you say process, I'm this, I'm just trying to be like trying to understand it better myself. So if I, if I'm thirsty, the process of me pouring water into a cup and then lifting the cup up, that is that considered the process or is it really the pleasure is, and this would make more sense. The pleasure is really from when the water goes down and it's like that feeling of, Oh, I'm no longer thirsty because I'm actively drinking. I'm, I can feel myself changing from thirsty to quenched. What do you mean by the word process? I guess like how far back does it go? Yeah, that's a good question because essentially now some people may think, well, what does that matter? Yeah. But it, <laughs> I thought that it does. I it does <laughs> no, no, because it does matter. It does matter, actually, because we can you can end up asking, well, does the act of anticipation constitute a pleasure? Right. Because that's essentially what you're asking. You're asking, does me anticipating the drinking of water constitute a pleasure? Now, I would say that there is. 
we're because we're only talking about physical right now, right? Because I think that's easy. But a mental pleasure could be something like an anticipation, right? Where we could say there's a mental pleasure in in a memory. And so a memory can be a sort of anticipation. So, um, you know, let's say one of these days I finally make my way up to St. Louis, right? And I can be, I can be experiencing, I can be experiencing pleasure, right, by re- being in fond memory, right, of of McCabs. of you and your wife, oh, and okay. of McKebs, <laughs> even though even though there's no McKebs in St. Louis, so that's why you have to think um, about it. Uh, or or it may be that right i could say i think about i think about mckebs and i'm and i'm like okay this is this is nice because i'm anticipating it um but there there's a problem here because that and we'll have to get into this because this kind of gets into the heart of his ethic right where it can also cause a mental agitation Right. Because you can be you could desire something, right? And then have that desire be agitated. So I would say for simplicity's sake, there's a possibility for a mental pleasure to constitute an anticipation for something to be fulfilled. However, it would be best, I think, based on what we know, that it is purely the act of of the fulfillment, the process of a fulfillment, that fulfillment itself, rather than the is the physical preceding actions is the physical pleasure right got you mm-hmm. right because mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. that is the next kind of um the thing i learned reading this instead of just kind of knowing his name is um lesson though first there's that big you know subversion in the physical where you're like oh okay there's this kind of negative physical pleasure um but the mental pleasure the 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 author of the foreword of this copy, the Penguin Classics, um, he talks about it. He kind of describes the mental side of it as a Zen, as a Zen state, almost like an Eastern philosophy. Um, so maybe as you start talking about the the mental state and like that, what that pleasure would mean, you could kind of tie that in. Yeah. So the best way to explain it would be something like. Um, he's really pursuing states of being in his ethics. So the fulfillment of pleasures lead to certain lucid states. I guess that's the best way to say it. So you have what's called aponia, aponia, let's say it that way, aponia, A-P-O-N-I-A, which is a state of of physical fulfillment. So so catastomatic pleasure, right, that state of being – one definition of that of the pleasure that you're experiencing that catastomatic pleasure that state would be you know would constitute eudaimonia would constitute happiness right so that is the foremost pleasure and so aponia is the height of physical pleasure so meaning to say that again if it's if pleasure is a negation the absence of pain then that means that the the complete freedom from physical p- pain and want is is aponia whereas the complete freedom from mental anguish and and the and therefore the fulfillment of your mental pleasure because again i I have to keep going back it's kind of confusing right when because when we say freedom from pain complete freedom from pain in both physical and mental is the fulfillment of pleasure you don't go beyond that Right. So it is only so if you were the, both the mentally and physically 
devoid of pain, you would at be you would be at the apogee of happiness. You'd be at eudaimonia. Those that's right, it. right, and this because for him the mental because he's a materialist, all the mental um, pain or pleasure is the same. It, it's made from it's at least it comes from Adam somehow. So it it's both physical and mental. There's nothing past that. Because there's no afterlife. Right, but he uses a different. No... He uses a different term, though. Right, right, right. But he uses a different term. So instead of aponia, he calls it ataraxia, and that's the mental. And so, okay. yeah, that technically, by by pure Greek definition, gotcha. that would be the mental. However, we use the term ataraxia to like cover both. Um, so usually, you'll see you'll see it talked about ataraxia being the the whole of the lucid state so the, okay you know, so that he uses two that we're but about. we talk about it using just the second one okay that's not yeah. confusing so i'm for, sure no one will be confused by that so it'll be good <laughs> um so but essentially what we're saying is that all of his ethics is pretty much bound up in these two terms because you have aponia and ataraxia this is this is what we're pursuing right the f- complete freedom from pain in a physical and in a mental sense and so they're the ideal tranquil unperturbed undisturbed states in which you are free from all distress and worry because you are absent from pain but you're also not necessarily what we would say think of that as maximizing pleasure right because you would because a lot of americans today and I would say other people in the Western world as well would state that, you know, the absence of pain does not necessarily constitute the maximization of pleasure. But he would say that is not the case because the pursuit of pleasure, pleasures beyond just the absolute bare minimums to to absolve yourself of those rudimentary based desires is something that is going to disturb you in the long term. So to go back to that McKeb's example, right, you know. Epicurus would say, well, you can use the bacon, egg, and cheese to solve your state of hunger, right? However, the problem is, is that you are now creating a new desire, right? You are, you a are second now- second bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich. Sure. <laughs> like now you want, like, because now you specifically need or want a bacon, egg, and cheese to fulfill that specific craving, Right. And so that's and that can frustrate you even further and that can cause other problems. So like, you know, so he does not live in the moment. He's he's all about long term because that could be a very big difference between just fulfill your immediate pleasure and the idea that, oh, I'm actually creating some sort of habit or I mean, in this case, it's it literally sounds almost like, well, I'm eating now, but now all I'm really doing is going to now I'm going to be hungry again later. Like. So he really I would is say, all about long-term benefits. Like he would want to pare down what you do so that you don't open up all these different avenues to be disappointed. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm apprehensive to use the term long-term because, right. um, well, he, he would think about long-term in the sense that, you know, we need to be considering, um, because pleasure is not just like you're saying, it's not just something that's in the moment, right? Because we can be causing, we can, when we reason through our actions, according to Epicurus, based on the pleasure pain principle, we have to ask, we also have to consider the future, right? Because we can do something pleasurable now. Like I can, you know, you can cheat on your wife, right? And then no, that I could can't. be pleasurable in the moment. Stefan, no, you can't, but I wouldn't do that. 
<laughs> I physically can't. But, so, <laughs> so hypothetically, right, somebody can cheat on their wife and say but not that me. is pleasurable for them in the moment. Yeah, not you. Correct. And and But then that may cause or it will cause heartache and strife in the future. So what Epicurus is all about is, like you said, paring down pleasure because in a weird roundabout way, what he's saying is make oh, sure man. that – the the we want to make it as simple as possible for you to achieve catastomatic pleasure. Now I got a real so problem. Inst- okay, because oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold oh, on, man. hold on. I'll get you. I'll let you get there. I'm just gonna say that instead of instead of hunger being having to be fulfilled by a specific kind of meal or your thirst quenched by a specific drink or you know developing an addiction to say alcohol or something like that the biggest example that he uses is sex right so he says that you know sex is unnecessary uh, but you still desire it so he's saying that it's best to to pare those down and say that simplicity is is the best practice because then therefore you can you cannot really you'll never be able to be dissatisfied because if all because if all you need to satisfy your hunger is is bread and cheese that's a pretty easy thing to do if all you need to do to quench your thirst is water um and if you don't need to well you know correct me if i'm uh, wrong regale yourself in fine clothes but i remember uh, good in one of the letters it said that a pot of cheese was actually like a, a delicacy for him personally that he lived right. even without right. cheese and some sour wine. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Correct. He was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. But anyway, what's your, okay. Ahead. So now I'm thinking like from this point of view, I think we may have touched on it last time. I'm not sure if I can't recall if it made it into your solo episode. The idea that if I'm trying to trying to find what is best for me, most pleasurable, in this moment, yet I need to really kind of have this mental calculus of, okay, well, yeah, I could cheat on my wife now, but then it could cause these problems. And then you're like, okay, well, what's the risk factor here, et cetera, et cetera. Or like something like, should I have this fourth beer? Oh, but I know I'll feel kind of gross if I do that. I feel pretty good right now, but I'll feel pretty good for a while. But then tomorrow I'll feel terrible. Um, what? What I'm seeing happening is that you're kind of relying on this practical reason or this discernment or prudence or something, something outside of the simple pleasure pain um, equation. And like that to me is making me think of how he kind of was arguing with Plato about how like the role of reason and what how highly ranked it should be, because to me, it's starting to sound like you actually do need this very practical reason at every step or else how are you going to decide what is the best pleasure or the way to avoid these pains like as an individual making particular choices? Wow. Um, <laughs> um, I have an argument for you. Okay. And I'm then, happy. but then I have... But then I have a counter argument against, against your that own argument. argument. Oh my gosh, that disproves that point. So I guess me we'll just get them. into it. Yeah. So I'm going to hit you with a quote first and foremost, um, where he writes that um, he writes towards the end of the letter. He says, "The starting point of this whole scheme." Oh wait, hold on. Sorry, is this? Let me read this quote. Yeah, so 
The starting point of this whole scheme and the most important of its values is good judgment, which consequently is more highly esteemed even than philosophy. All the other virtues stem from sound judgment, which shows us that it is impossible to live the pleasant Epicurean life without also living sensibly, nobly, and justly without living pleasantly. The traditional virtues grow up together with the pleasant life. They are indivisible. And then I write in my notes, Epicurus breaks from tradition once more by emphasizing prudence and practical wisdom over the theoretical knowledge of philosophy regarding first cause. He would argue that it is practical wisdom and common sense that allows us to discern what between the bodily pleasures and achieve ataraxia. In this way, Epicureanism advocates for a life of reason that's rooted in materialism, understanding the theoretical nature of atomic theory, using reason to analyze and verify your empirical experience, and then practicing discernment in which pleasures to pursue and to what degree. So there is an argument to be said for he's not necessarily of the philosophical wisdom. Right. It's more of a practical virtue. Very, very. Except theoretical knowledge is necessary in terms of understanding the atoms. But beyond that, he is going to emphasize a prudent, practical Right. The theory of understanding the atoms is essentially to free yourself from fear and then to say, no, I should live by my prudence. I guess my next question would be like, where do you learn this prudence? But And then I'm like, I feel like that may involve some theorizing unless he's literally like, no, I tried that. It made me feel bad. So I'm going to try this. It made me feel good. There you go. I got prudence. Like I know what I know what's good and bad based off of the pain or pleasure it brought me. Right. But then he would say, you know, to add to that, the state of ataraxia would make you a just man, you know, and he would say that uh, that his definition of justice and therefore virtue we can use the terms almost interchangeably. Um, it's again, it's not rooted in in some sort of a priori argument of, or the idea of form, um, but it's just an empirically arrived at contractual obligation between two parties. So it's a very, it's just it's a grounded sort of agreed set of values that people just arrive at based on their reasoning through the pleasure pain principle. Okay, I, I, I see the difference between like what you may call an armchair like critic where they're like, I'm going to consider the forms like in a platonic manner and someone who's like, oh, we all live our regular lives and we all know that we don't like to be cheated on. We don't like to someone to break a contract with me or you to lie to me, etc. I don't like when you punch me, so I'm not going to punch you like those are those are different in the sense that they're one's very grounded. Of course, you could then say, well, why is it bad? I feel like that's if I was Plato, that's what I would do. But then he would just say, because it makes me feel bad or it makes me feel good. Right. And then it goes back to the atoms inevitably, which is why they're all tied together. But it, it does it does end up leaning on a a tenet of natural law theory um, and where we're talking about inherent like morality within somebody. And so it can devolve from there. I think, I think, you know, there are philosophers that would have his lunch, you know, for making such an assertion. They'd be very um, disappointed at least in this. It's not a very big lunch. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's just, it, unfortunately it is not for them, <laughs> but in this context, yeah, you're right. That's, that would, that would be to answer that question. That would be, that would be his, I would think his response to that to that question okay so 
Yeah, I'm. I, I guess I'm thinking too far ahead because I'm thinking like er, even Aristotle, but that's after. And I'm like Aristotle's more about the ethics is very practical. But I, I guess if you're talking against Plato, I can see why he kind of went the opposite direction and was like, I don't care about right, your theory he tried to- as much as what I'm actually doing. Right. He tried to he tried to have it both ways. Right. So he tried to affirm, you know, the Greek conception of virtue um, of their civic virtue, but he did not want to embrace the forms. And so he tried to, in a, in a sense, he tried to take the Greek virtue and, and legitimize it within a materialist framework is is what you're seeing. And so you see this kind of Essentially, he's using the pleasure pain principle, the state of ataraxia as as the justification for what would, you know, as as basically a stand in for this idea of justice. So which is I guess I guess the other thing I'm kind of stubbing my toe on when I'm like I'm reading that I hear you talk is if he says like, okay, I, I eat this, it makes me feel good. I I do that. It makes me feel bad. And we agree upon this at at what point does it just become like is equals ought like I do this oh, therefore I ought to there it is and like at that point oh no I don't know it, oh no I feel like it may crumble into a sense of more relativism which I don't know if he's hiding hold up, hold up, hold up. I don't know if he's trying hold on. to hide from that hold on I don't think he is uh, hold on hold on hold on I said the r word I know I'm sorry so I need you to define the is ought problem for our listeners. Okay. If you're going to bring it up. The idea that there is a moral ought, that there's something outside of, there's something specifically moral about an action in that it's breaking some sort of law, some sort of transcendental law, whoever the lawgiver is. But it's not an, an ought in the way that a, a machine ought to be oiled. It's a not a teleological ought, it's a different type of ought. Um, A different, like, one ought not break the Ten Commandments is different than one ought to put gas in my car to drive. So the idea of the is-ought problem in this situation would be like, I want to do this, therefore I ought to do it. And it essentially makes anything I do something I ought to do because I did it because this is of course grounded on the idea that if I did something I wanted to do it I guess the loophole here would be that a weakness of will problem (laughs) that you know uh, Epicurus could say yes you did eat too much and at the moment you wanted to Yet you should have had better, a better virtue of prudence to know that you ought not to have done that. Yet, I would say that if, say like I drank five (laughs) beers and that made me feel bad, yet Aaron drank five beers and it didn't make him feel bad and he knows that, there's no problem with him drinking more than me because he felt good and I didn't. Therefore, it would be a I would be breaking the moral ought by doing that and causing myself pain. Yet Aaron would not be breaking that. But wouldn't I also be breaking my moral ought by engaging in a pleasure that goes beyond 
the absence of pain or attempting to engage in pleasure that goes beyond the absence of pain. Perhaps, but so I'm just using I, that as an example. I think that's right, right, right. I, I'm just, point, I'm just using that as right. I, right. I, I don't, no, I don't think I, it's a great example. Don't get me wrong, but I, I was just using that as a launching point to say, you know, just to continue to remind us that, hey, by the way, this is the actual definition, but I understand your point. And I was going to let you chase your tail a little bit there because when I read the letter again for like the third time and then I read corresponding Lucretius passages and did some research, I really did sit down and because I knew you were going to bring up the is ought issue because I thought about it as well. And I think you did a good job with the definition. And I thought about this for a long time. And I was going to let you <laughs> let me talk to myself in a circle keep, for five yeah. minutes. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, I was like, uh, that could be the rest of the death, episode, yeah. honestly. Well, because the, the only because the only issue with your reasoning behind it is that uh, I was hoping that you were going to just come to the conclusion that there uh, that there is no difference between the is and the ought for Epicurus. Like he doesn't say that himself. It's not like he had any sort of idea or compunction about is ought, right? Like that's a more modern yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, but ought is a modern conception, right? So, but when you look back on it, it there is no practical difference between is and ought for him. And in fact, you can go even further because as you're trying to reason through it, and I did this myself, I was like, well. I can't see any practical difference between is and ought because what is what is pleasure, right? Or is the absence of pain more specifically is something you ought to do. So there's nothing, there's no, it's just a natural fact. And then, and therefore your natural fact of the absence of pain is your moral obligation. And then the ending result of that means that you can't come to any moral conclusion about anything whatsoever. Like everything becomes every action Every action at that point, it, because right, I think I think the one that thing do, that could save him is that if he argued that people don't actually act for their own happiness, because if you assume that anything you're doing is actually aimed at eudaimonia, the pain, right. then then right. I think we you land right there and you say, yeah, well, if everything I do is for my happiness, and your only ethical standard is that I ought to do what's for my happiness, then they are equivalent. I, I don't know the answer and you can I'm sure you can confirm, but I I do see that he could argue that like maybe like an Augustinian sort of like weakness of will way and be like, well, actually, yeah, you should aim for happiness, but we don't always because we have I, I doubt he believed in like some sort of original sin or something like that. The problem is, is that he doesn't do that. Okay. I, I would wish he does. I wasn't sure. I was like, I, that's why I was going in a circle. I was like, well, maybe there is a loophole. I just don't know if he took it. <laughs> so. No, okay. he didn't. He, he would say that he would say that the reason why we don't pursue his form of ethics is simply because we have, we are misguided and disturbed about what constitutes pleasure. And we have, we just have, once again, false belief and false opinion about the material world, which causes us to, you know, okay. to so if he saw someone that wasn't following his his philosophy and they were doing something and causing themselves pain, yet when he asked them, they said, "No, this is I'm aiming at my pleasure or at my happiness. It's just not your version." And he's like, "No, I can see that it's causing you pain." Would he be able to say that he shouldn't do that, 
Or would he say, well, he thinks it's causing him happiness, so it's okay? No, we would have to start from the beginning at that point, right? So you would have to he say... have to sit him down and say, so okay, for there's example, these atoms. And they're everywhere. Well, think about it. Think about it for a second. So the... Like, let's imagine that, you know, there is somebody who is in mental anguish because he believes he's going to hell, right? And then an Epicurean comes by and says you know, what's, what's bothering you? What's disturbing you? Oh, I, I believe that I'm going to hell because of the many multitude of sins that I participate in. And the Epicurean would say, no, that's, don't you see that you're in anguish? Just give up, give up this false belief of this God or gods that you have. And then therefore you won't, you won't have to be, you don't have to be bothered by this fear. And then they go and look at you like you have seven heads because of course God is real. And then so then therefore now you're backtracking, right? You have to then disprove the existence of God by by providing a materialist conception of the universe by providing atomic theory, which then leads you to those conclusions. So you you have to work all the way back at that point. You, and he can't say – and he's not going to say obviously that, oh, well, that's just your that's just your definition, man. Like do what you want. It's all good. Live your truth because he's absolutely not about that either. So then – to go back to the azot problem, all actions are just immoral behavior, and you can't logically demonstrate them. You just can't. It, 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 <laughs> Ta da! <laughs> I because it, I, I don't want to be I don't want to be mean, right? Because I don't expect Epicurus to fit my moral standards of philosophy. Where in academia, it's like a knife fight, right? As as you probably are well aware of, right? Like we are people. Who literally make it their life's work to to stab other philosophers in the back and, and get them? You know, it's biting bullets and and gotcha essays of of trying to absolutely squeeze people. Um, for I don't know why we pay money. these people way too much money. <laughs> but yeah, for money. It's a career, baby. And yeah, yeah. And Talking I don't expect Epicurus to like. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't believe Epicurus is somebody that was anticipating the the academic rigor of philosophy in in the modern university right, right? so well, i don't no, think he's ancient. thinking about reductio ad absurdum <laughs> yeah so well what about a different example because uh, i know the gods and the fear of hell is like a very central to like what practically he was dealing with but like let's take an example of say like there's he's a friend he is an epicurean yet he has this habit of always drinking too much to the point where he he has a problem, he's doing these things that aren't just this negative pleasure or pain. He's drinking too much, and the next day he always feels terrible, and Epicurus is like, you gotta stop that. And he's like, well, well, it makes me feel happy, even though I know it causes me pain. Like, what do you say to that? Yeah, so I think the first thing, um, or am I, and it's something that we actually missed, Oh, go sorry. Go I think I think my problem is I'm considering this in like a modern utilitarian way, where it's like, okay, his pleasure was a hundred, but his pain was negative two hundred. Therefore, it's bad. Instead of just thinking, no, if he's off the scale either direction, it's bad. He should just be at a zero, at a zen state. I think that's kind of where right. I'm having this problem. Right. And it's and it's also there's something there's something else that we missed earlier on when I forgot to talk about the definition of desires, 
I think that would okay. help a little bit because he actually because and because we talked about anticipation and not necessarily desire. Um, and so he actually breaks down desires into different categories. So he would say um, your desire can be either natural um, and necessary. So, for example, natural and necessary would be something that food, water, right? Very, basic. very specific, very basic. It's a natural desire and it's necessary for you to live, right? And then you have natural but unnecessary. So the best example that he gives is probably sex, right? So sex is a natural desire. People want to have sex, but it's an unnecessary thing that you need to fulfill. Like you don't actually need to have – now. There's going to be one person in the audience <laughs> jumping up and down and being like, no, that's not true. It's, but the, it's the chocolate it's, fish it's, again from SpongeBob, <laughs> but this time with sex. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. But anyway, it's it's unnecessary. It's 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 unnecessary because it doesn't it doesn't fulfill any sort of thing for you to live. Um, and then and. And it causes and Lucretius rails against sex because it causes complications in the pain in in their version of the pain pleasure principle. He had that great um, quote where he's like, you know, maybe sex doesn't do you harm, but it sure has never done anyone any good. <laughs> I forget what. Or no, it's like yes, maybe it does do exactly, some. That's exactly. It does some good, but it sure has done a whole lot of harm. Like essentially, he's just balancing the two, and he's like, yeah, even if you can argue there's a little bit of good here, it's not worth what you're gonna have to pay for it. Well, he has this huge passage about Cupid striking people with arrows and and people going absolutely insane. And he talks about how really sex is all about um, or lustful passion, as he as he would put it, is all about like wanting to meld bodies, you know, struggling so hard for one body to be within the other. And it's never and it's never obtainable. And he goes through, you know, I don't know how kid friendly we're supposed to be. Hey, this is just in philosophy. my philosophy podcast. Okay. Yeah, but he, you know, he just says thing. that it's really just a temporary. It's a temporary release um, for something that you can't even achieve. So it's it's just unnecessary for him. But he would say that you know, then there's but going back to desires, he would say there's also empty. There's empty desires. So it, you know, something like it's something that is absolutely unachievable, unachievable, and it's also unnatural. So immortality would be one. So he would look at Christians like your desire for immortality is something that is absolutely baseless and it's terrible for you because what are you doing? Like that's not that's neither natural nor is it necessary. So that kind of I guess like to go back to your beer question, right? And and you said that you're thinking about this in utilitarian terms when it's not really that. Right. Or that utilitarian. He would say that. Right. But he would still say to that person who is who is having those beers and, and you know, being in pain from the beer, he would say something uh, along the lines of, hey, you know, your desires are are misguided. Right. You're not thinking you're not. You, this is an unnecessary. This is a this is an unnecessary. It's a natural. It's natural to want to quench your thirst. So but would, this is but unnecessary would he say for it to you be ought beer. not to do that. I I already told you, Daniel. <laughs> I already told you the is ought issue. He says it, it, it. He would say you ought not to do that. And and but the is it is 
is the same as the ought in that case. Okay, so you're saying he would say it is, it, you ought not to do it, but you also essentially tried to say he doesn't really get the benefit of saying ought anyway because of his position. Yeah, I yeah, essentially. It's just if for for him what you need to, what what is the case is what you ought to do. So what is the case here is that you are not desiring something that is natural or you have a natural desire but your natural desire is placed in something that is unnecessary. So you're you are pursuing you're trying to go beyond what constitutes pleasure. You're trying to go above. So that that's what is is happening and that's not something you ought to do. Okay. I think I understand that. Um I had I had kind of a fun question for you. Um if okay. if what he's aiming at is some sort of zen state. Um this kind of negative pleasure. I was curious because you can kind of see this in the physical in the way where he's like have less desires that way you'll have less to combat. Um do you think that this kind of this kind of idea would would kill your conscience conscience? I was kind of curious, like, imagine if you were like, my main goal in life is to not feel bad and not feel mentally and physically not feel bad. So what if I instead of becoming a better person, just stopped caring as much about other people? Wouldn't that have the same effect? Yeah, you immediately run into another another problem with Epicurean philosophy. Because it's like, okay, maybe maybe he's like, you shouldn't have a ton of sex. And then I say to him, because it makes you, it's, you're doing, it's like this pleasure you shouldn't be having. It's going to cause these different problems. And what if I said to him, what if I just stopped feeling guilty about it? How about that? Of course, you'd have to learn how to not be feel guilty about different things, but... Because I'm like, if the whole point is just not to feel this mental pain, then what if you just train yourself not to feel that pain and then still do all the things that he says you shouldn't? Um, yeah, I, I mean, hypothetically, I guess that's a you you got him yeah, there, I, did I guess. It. But finally, but practically, no one has but to practically speaking, he would he would just. He would just look at you, though. He would just look at you weird <laughs> on a practical level, and he would say, okay. Do you, it. You did it. But, I mean, yeah, but do it. Exactly. He no, would just say, okay, feel free. Then I end up in free. a crime and punishment problem. Yeah. But I'm yeah. a Napoleon. I, I, hope somebody, I hope somebody understood those references. Okay, um, fine. I'll explain all of crime and punishment <laughs> right now. Please don't. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, there. you did touch on something, though, um, because there's nothing in his, in his ethics that really, cause he would say that something like friendship is something to absolutely be pursued. Um, and it's something that's super important, but there's also nothing in his ethics that really justifies. And I know this wasn't your question, but it kind of touched on it. There's nothing that justifies the, any sort of social teaching, like any sort of moral obligation to your fellow man. Right, it's you know, all very nothing personal. In, in this pleasure, yeah. It's yeah. not, and I yeah, think exactly. that is like, one of the big differences between, like me, me thinking of this as a utilitarianism, but then later utilitarianism, which is 
wholly social. And then to have one that's very personal and private is kind of it's kind of odd or it's just harder. It's just not as easy to understand immediately. It's easy to conflate from a modern perspective. Yeah, well, we are now coming up on 56 minutes okay. of recording now time. Now I'll explain crime and punishment. Yes, that will be the... Well, we could do crime and punishment next series, you I promise? guess. We can we could stop Epicurus. We could do Epicurus <laughs> and then jump all the way to <laughs> crime I and punishment. I think it's the next logical step. I, you know, why not? Um, so I, I think... I think we could stop this here. I don't know if you wanted to. Did you want to do a second episode? Do you feel like I do have we some, covered it? I think we covered the or you covered like the basic um, like tenets and like what's really important. I think what I have left over are kind of kind of off the wall questions that I think are probably going to yeah. end similarly where you're like, OK, you got him or like, OK, yeah, maybe he would say that. I don't know. So. Some of them are just, I mean, but some of them are more standard. Like one of my questions was, what is the role of friendship for Epicurus? So it's like, I, I'm curious to hear more about it, <laughs> Epicurus. Um, but I, if we don't do another one, I wouldn't be, maybe we could do a short one. Did you just say Epicurus? <laughs> okay, yeah, we got to go. Oh, oh um, my, yeah. <laughs> we got to go. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe we could do a short, just like Q&A session, but make it separate. Yeah, we could do like a free, minutes. yeah, we could freewheel it. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Okay, so um, until next time, everybody, um, that concludes our general definition of ethical hedonism under Epicurean philosophy, and uh, we'll hope to uh, you know, uh, be back here soon uh, to continue the series and finish this off. Bye, everyone.